Happy birthday. Amen. Amen. Does anybody else get emotional on birthdays or just me? Right? Your body hurts a little more. You can't bend over. Like, it's an emotional experience. But I do love birthdays. And that's not always been true for me. I usually hate birthdays. I never made a big deal of them. I kind of ignored them. It saved me a lot of money also. But there's something about a birthday that causes you to pause and look back at the previous year, previous eight years for us. In fact, something that I do with our kids at all of their birthdays, I take them on a date. Uh, Sushi's the go-to for my older boys for sure. And we go on a date and we just sit down and we do an exercise called three things. It's three things to look back on the past year. And so it's something we do. We say, what are three things that you're really proud of from the last year? Three things that you're like, man, apart from the grace of God, this never would have happened, but I'm celebrating God's grace. Three things. What are three things that honestly you're kind of sad to tell me as your dad? Three things you're proud of. Three things that you're like, yeah, I kind of wish you didn't know this, but since dads know everything, I'm still at that life stage with my kids where they think I know everything, which is actually mom that knows everything, but still it works. Three things that you're sad to tell me. You're almost sad to say it out loud because you're embarrassed, you're bummed, but you recognize you don't beat yourself up because God wastes nothing, because God redeems all things for his glory and for your good. So three things you're proud of, three things you're bummed about, maybe a little repentant over, and then three things that you're like, man, if I have a dream next year, what would those three things look like? Three things that if failure was not an option, here's what I think I'd like to see God do to me and through me again for his glory and other people's good. So we do this date, it's called Three Things, and we do it every year and we take our notes and we reflect on the previous three things and we check in throughout the year. It's actually an exercise we do with our staff. We actually do it three times a year, we do three things just to check in. And so this morning we're gonna take some time as a church on our birthday and practice three things. Three things that we're proud of, three things that we're like, eh, and three things specifically that we're like, God, we would like to see you do what only you can do. That's been the story for me of Vintage Grace, is again, we're giving God glory for the great things that he has done, even as, as our worship team was leading us, and Jake just said, remember and reflect right now on the people that have been Christ to you. Like, I can't watch that video and not be thankful for the way men and women have fought for their joy before us, that they lead me as I faithfully try to follow Jesus. And so as we get started today, I wanna start with our vision. Now, in the good old days, you'd pull out your worship folder because I'd say, what's our vision at Vintage Grace? And everyone would have it on them. Some of you have already seen, you're going to the website. That's a good idea, right? But what is our vision? I have a gift card, so you're coming to our birthday party, but I wanna give you a gift, okay? I have a gift card for anybody that knows what our vision is as a church. And this is that real awkward point for me where if Christy Parker doesn't say something, then I don't know who's gonna answer the question. What's our vision? Anybody know what our vision is as a church? joy-filled communities of faith, whose very existence, I'll put it on the screen, Aaron, you're, you're halfway there, <laughs> whose very existence inspires every individual to live what? Abundant. The abundant Christian life, right? And so Aaron, thank you. I'll try not to poke. She caught it. Again, God is good. Aaron is lucky, but God is good. This is our vision. And so if I could just start with three things that I'm grateful for, as I look back over the last eight years, here's the first one. Again, maybe you've heard this. You probably hear it almost every Sunday. You probably hear it in your life groups. You might not hear it verbatim, word for word, but you get the gist. Even as Aaron was saying it, you're like, oh yeah, I know that, I know that. I just wanted to give someone else a chance to win a gift card. You're so gracious. But this is our vision, to build joy-filled communities of faith. And I wanna start with just that, that first line, communities. When we planted Vintage, the goal was not to plant a church. That was never our dream. We didn't feel like that's what God called us to. 
In fact, as you see the church, which goes from Jerusalem to today to Samaria to the ends of the earth, the plan of God was never to have a church. I mean, it's his church. He is the lead pastor. But it was to plant new churches in every city the disciples went. Now, why did the disciples travel so much in the first century? Because they were being persecuted, and so they were running, right? Sometimes God calls them to stay. Sometimes he calls them to leave. And, and so they, they go. But joy-filled community was always the dream. So watching that video, to think, guys, in eight years, we've been able to be a part of the launching of new churches. That's because of your generosity. It's because of your time, your treasure, your talent. To see God do that in Sacramento, as we have a church plant that's almost five years old now, in Oakland, which is like five months old now, that these are the churches that we get to partner with. We have something called the Family Churches at Vintage Grace. Whose family? God's family. It's not about our brand. It's not about our name. The only name in heaven that matters is the name of Jesus. Amen? Vintage is a piece of the kingdom, but again, it's just a piece. We are not the kingdom of God. He is the king. Amen? And so when we plant joyful communities of faith, sometimes that's through church plants. We have two guys on staff right now that we hope to send someday. We hope to, to raise up leaders and then release them for kingdom movement. That's part of our vision as a church of building joy-filled communities of faith. We also have this family of churches, guys like David Bartosik or Phil Cooley, guys that are saying, hey, I'm new to being a senior pastor. I want to focus on what matters most, which is simply this. Jesus gave us one mission. Remember Matthew 28? Go make what? Disciples. Our vision is not to be a church planning church. Our vision is to be a disciple-making church. And actually, as disciples start to gather, you know what we call that? Church planting. So that's our vision, to build joyful communities of faith. And so I'm so thankful that God is doing that to us and through us. That's why it's joyful communities, plural. That's one thing I'm grateful for looking back. Here's the second thing. It's not just something happening there. It's happening right here. That that's your vision. That you go to Vintage Grace, we use that battleship language. That again, we, we've said there's a lot of places you can get a slap on the butt, an encouraging word. You can turn on your radio, right, and get an encouraging word. We're fighting for our joy. It's not just something that we talk about on Sundays. It's something that we do on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays. We do it in groups. You're fighting for your personal joy. I, I look back through some of my old Vintage Grace journals. Anybody remember this one? It's the old logo. I just went back through and just read some of my old journals this week because that's what you do on birthday weeks. I went back to this one. God, what are you inviting me into? That's a prayer that you guys pray faithfully. I saw kind of our latest journal book, which is actually Disciples Made Here. Would you be praying a week from tomorrow, I'll be training 50 church pastors to hopefully live as disciple makers. You know something I've discovered in the Church of America? A lot of pastors don't make disciples. They run Sunday morning worship services. In fact, that's been church planning in the Church of America for way too long. We've been planting worship services. Actually, here's the truth of the gospel. God plants the gospel in your heart, and then you go plant the gospel in your neighborhood. Amen? That's church planning. It's you living as sent ones. And so church, please hear me. Corporately, God's doing some really cool things that we get to be a part of. But personally, it brings me so much joy seeing you every day wake up and fight for your joy and say, God, use me. God, send me. As we leave this place, we see the send letters in the lobby. We see the send billboards as we leave this campus. We love our gatherings, but it's 0.7% of the week. That's it. And I preach long sometimes, so like 0.75. But that's it. The majority of our time is spent where? There. It's spent by you being the pastors of your neighborhood. And so, yes, it's happening over there. But if you look at the vision, we're pastor building joyful communities of faith whose very existence inspires who? Well, hopefully we. <laughs> hopefully me. You guys as individual sent ones as missionaries. Now, what are we hoping that you're going to go live like? Miserable, angry, 
fighting Christians. Is that what the vision statement says? We wanted to plant joyful communities of faith whose very existence inspires what? This abundance. This joy-filled Christian life. Church, here's the gospel. We'll get there in a moment. We were dead in our sin, but God makes us alive, and that makes us what? Seven of us. You'd think I've been using that same joke for seven years, right, Christy? That's not a new joke. She laughs because she knows what I'm going to say. Guys, this is the gospel. We were dead, but God makes us alive, and that's what makes us happy. We know the final score. Like, we just sang a song that God is going to fight our battles for us, that when we gather on Sunday mornings, we're not coming together for, like, this slap-on-the-butt sermon looking for victory. We come together not for victory, but what? From victory. We come together because the battle's already been fought and it's already been won. Somebody say amen. Amen. So why do we worry? Because we don't trust the victory. I I found it fun that we were singing that song because if you remember, that was the song that I was playing on repeat while I was training for a marathon. That's not a pump you up song, right? (laughs) Why do I worry? Like whenever I had a bad running day, it was like, well, because I was worshiping, that's why. And because I'm slow and I weigh too much. But like, Really, think about this. Why do we worry? Because we don't trust the victory we've already been given. That's why we worry. And again, I'm not trying to beat you up if you worry. If you struggle with worry, we're on the same team. We struggle with the same areas. But again, I'm thankful that corporately we're seeing our vision lived out. And personally, because of you, we're seeing this vision lived out. And here's the third thing I'm thankful for. That we're passionate about joyful communities, the abundant Christian life. It's an individual relationship with God, but it's a corporate one. But you see how the, the phrase starts? Who is we? We. When we say DMH, disciples made here, it's actually made through you, wherever you go. But can I just take a moment right now and thank God for our leaders? We're coming off of a two-year season of life where a lot of people were tossed to and fro, right? Chaos was everywhere. And I love this because we're saying that was the last two years. And every year I say, but we don't know what the future holds. We do know what the future holds. What does it hold? Turmoil. (laughs) Chaos brokenness, war, destruction. We know what the future holds. Guys, we're studying Revelation. We know what the future holds, but God wins. And so can I just take a moment and just thank God for our elders, for our staff, for our life group leaders. Like we would consider our gathering on a Sunday morning a gathering of a bunch of little house churches. I don't use the word house church because it freaks people out. But that's what we are. We're released everyday missionaries, living on mission personally are one, but we're doing it together. And so again, I just wanna take a moment and praise God for our elders and for our group leaders. If that's you, thank you. Thank you. And I'm I'm looking at leaders. Rick, you remember that first time in Starbucks? You're like, I don't plant churches, I'm too old. That's what you told me. I said, it's a good thing that God plants churches and not we. I mean, I look at what God's done through you guys, Parkers, your faithfulness to fight for your joy. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you know a former elder or a staff or a life group leader, would you just please thank them? Now, again, before we give them too much credit, it's our birthday. Now, on your birthday, here's why I always hated birthdays growing up. On my birthday, what did I do that was productive? Absolutely nothing. So again, I want to like live in this tension of thanking God for our group leaders and for our staff and for our leaders because again, we're in a culture and a world where nobody wants to be a leader and we all want to run away. What does it mean to be a leader in the gospel? It means that you're faithfully following Jesus, the true leader. But again, thank you leaders. But before we give them almost any credit is probably too much credit, but I'm glad that we clapped. I started, I know. But again, remember who did all the work on your birthday? Your mom. 
Again, growing up, I used to give my mom flowers on her birthday because I recognized that I did nothing on that day and it was weird that people bought me things. We should be buying her things. And so again, let's not miss who actually has done all the work of vintage grace. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, three in one. And so as much as we thank God for these last eight years, let's just sit in this present eight years and recognize who he is and what he's doing. And so here's my summary statement for today. We're taking a break from Revelation. We'll be back next week, but I wanna go to Philippians. It's the first book we preach through as a church. We looked at it last summer, and this was a text that we didn't get to last summer, but I wanted to, and so we saved it for today. Here's my summary. I'm gonna be in chapter two of the book of Philippians. This is Paul's first church plant in Europe. He planted the church. If you remember how he planted the church, he was in prison. The Philippian jailer, if you remember that story, that God wastes nothing. Remember people like Lydia, the people that were living on mission, even some of the names that I said here, we don't give them credit, but God did something to them and through them. And so this is Paul now sitting in prison. Is that not like the theme of Paul's life, right? If you think about Paul specifically, 16 times we see this in the New Testament, 40% of the references that Paul makes, guess where he is? He's not on a platform. He's not preaching a sermon. He's sitting in prison. In Philippi, he's locked up next to the Praetorian Guard. Remember, I, I locked a jailer next to me last summer. And Paul's like, guys, this isn't bad news because again, he's stuck listening to the gospel now. God is preaching, God is speaking, God is moving. No matter what your circumstances are, he wins. And so Paul's writing from that context. He's writing to these people that he loves. He calls them gospel partners, partakers of grace together. Part of why this is emotional is there's so many stories as I look out there. There's so many stories of your relationship with God and how God is not just leading you, but leading through you. And so here's my summer statement. God is glorified. He is the hero, not only in saving us from sin, which that's good news, that's the gospel, but the gospel is not just that he saved us from sin, but he also sent us for his work, that we as his people would shine as lights in the world. And yet for us to shine brightly, Paul's gonna call us as believers to live in the power of God, holding fast to his promises of instant and eternal joy. So I say this all the time, who wants to be happier tomorrow than they are today? Raise your hand. If your hand's not raised, you've got issues. That's what it means to be human. God is the only way we're gonna find that personally and corporate. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Philippians chapter two. We're gonna start in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, again, these are brothers. He cares about this. This is a church planning pastor. As you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you, church, you shine as lights in the world, hold fast to the word of life so that on the day of Christ, I might be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon that sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And so, Father God, we come before you and we rejoice. We are glad because we don't gather today looking for victory in the future. We gather today from the victory you've already given us in the present, in the past, and in the future. That you have won, that you are winning, and that you will win. And so we just praise you, Father. We praise you, Son, that modeled for us what kingdom living looked like. And we ask you, Spirit, to poke our hearts, to prod, and to woo us, to fight for our joy, for your glory, and for our good. We ask this, and ultimately, that our cities and neighborhoods would never be the same because of your joy invading their life, we pray. And everybody said, amen. So, as we dive into the text, whenever there's a therefore in the text, you have to ask the question, what's it therefore? You're so smart. 
So smart. We've only said it 50 times, right? What's it there for? Why is it there? So we got to go backwards before we can go forward. So here's what he says. Therefore, chapter 2, verse 12. Let's go back just one verse. Here's where he's ending his prayer. This is Paul's pastoral prayer for his people. And he says at the end, the meta theme, the meta narrative is that at the end of the world that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I don't ever want us to be confused. When we say that we are a joy-filled community of faith, when our number one value as a church is that you would fight for your joy, that there's more joy in Jesus, please don't miss this. There's something more important than your joy. What is it? The glory of God. In fact, how is God most glorified? This is a Piper quote that we use a lot here. God is most glorified when you are most satisfied in him. That God designed you in relationship to be with him. And so even today, part of why we picked this text, I just wanted to talk about the gospel for a moment. That this is all about the glory of God. And so he says, life is about the glory of God. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, you did that when I was around, but I'm gone, I'm in prison, I don't know if I'm ever gonna come back. Now that I'm gone, much more in my absence, would you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works. So what is the gospel? Church, here's my prayer. I've wrestled with this before. Too often in the church of America, we don't know what a disciple is. A disciple is someone who lives our cubed. That's what it is. A disciple then is someone that believes in the gospel. So we use these four shapes. We use this stool as a metaphor. It first starts with the first shape. It's, it's a V. That in the beginning, God did what? He created. Now, why did God create the world? I don't know. Anyone else wonder that? In the brokenness of the world, here's what I know. If everything's about his glory, on some level, he created the world for his glory. That on some level, God got more glory through creation than through not creating. And so that first V is a representation that God came down. That in the garden, God created you and me to be in relationship with him. Metaphorically, we use this stool as a, as a metaphor for the throne of our heart. That every one of us has a throne in our heart. And it's got vacancy for one. It was designed by God and it was designed by him and for him. So in the garden, he sat on the throne of Adam and Eve's heart. They worshiped, they played, they hung out. That was a true joy-filled community of faith. There was presence, there was relationship. God came down through creation. What else happened in the garden? There was this perfect relationship, but Adam and Eve did what? They rejected. That's what we call sin. That's what the X stands for. That in the garden, Adam and Eve and you and me and everybody in between knocked God off the throne of our heart and we took that seat. That's what sin is. Sin is rejecting God's best. Sin is settling for lesser joy. Sin is not believing that God's better is better. There's all sorts of definitions of sin, but all of those are some of the definitions that we use. That in the garden, God came down, he gave us relationship, he walked with his people, and in the garden, we rejected that. I just wanna sit there. God came to you and you said, I'm good. And by you, I mean we. I don't want to brush over this. In Revelation, we're going to spend five of the next seven weeks repenting. Why? Because this is our story. God came down, we rejected. How good is our God that that's not the end of the story, amen? That God took our problem of sin and he gave us a solution in Christ. That's what the cross stands for. Our problem, his solution, that he came near, that there was a wrath that our sin occurred that needed to be paid and that Jesus paid it all. That's why we're a joyful community of faith. We were dead in our sin, but God makes us alive. And so again, God comes down, we reject, and yet he restores. And that last V is just a reminder of what? That he's coming back again. 
So we're living in this intermediate state, a part of the kingdom of God, still living in the empire, but God wins. So again, when we hear the word salvation, don't miss this. Who's the main character of your salvation? Jesus. We were dead, but God makes us alive. That's salvation. So again, what is the power of God? Who does the work? He says very clearly, it is God who does the work, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God gets glorified even in our rejection because we come back. He gets glorified through us returning back to the Father of being the prodigal that runs back home. Now, who does the work of salvation, of justification? That moment where, again, he sits on the throne and he restores us back to the Father, Jesus does. Who does that work? The Father, the Son, the Spirit, three in one. We do not do that work. We were dead, but God makes us alive. That's justification. The other work within the gospel is called sanctification. Look at the text that says this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I don't think he's saying, if you read this quickly, you're like, oh, this is works righteousness. You've got to do something. No, church, you were dead in your sin, Paul says. In fact, later in chapter 3, Paul's going to be very harsh against people that are preaching a self-righteous gospel. If you want to keep reading in Philippians, you'll see that in the next chapter. We don't do any work in justification. God does all of the work. We were dead, but he makes us alive. We have some sort of a role in sanctification, but really, who does that work also? Jesus. He does that work too. Our role then is just to cooperate. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you've obeyed now in my absence, also in my presence, work out your own salvation. I don't want us to read that in the context of we've got to earn something. What I think Paul's saying here, like he said in other letters, is he's simply saying this. I want you to be happier tomorrow than you are today. I want you to recognize what salvation does to your heart how it affects your head and your hands. I don't want you to settle for what we call a vintage grace, one cheek faith, where we start to share this seat. There's not joy in sharing the seat with Jesus. There's joy in giving the seat back to you who made it, amen? So that's what Paul's saying. Work out, don't, don't be tempted to crawl back up onto the throne of your heart. That's God's and God's alone. We use the acronym OST. It stands for Ongoing Spiritual Transformation that healthy things grow, that we believe at Vintage, you can't be justified without be being sanctified. Now that sounds intense. You can talk to your life completer about it. We talk about it a lot. You can't be justified without be being sanctified. So we're fighting for our joy. Now again, the Spirit is helping us sanctify us. The Spirit is making us more like him. The Spirit is wooing us and calling us to have new affections in our heart where we don't settle for lesser joys because they're not even attractive anymore. We only want what is best, which is following Jesus. And so there's this, this reality that God's role, the power of God, justifies, he also sanctifies. And yet also he gives us a role to do something. He gives us a role to fight, to work out. And one of the ways that we work out is by actually just trusting that God's better is better. Here's what the text says. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, when your kids don't obey you, you know what they're really saying? Dad, I don't trust you that your better is better. It's that simple. And that's literally what sin is. It's us literally telling God, God, I've got a better idea. God's like, look, I love you. I'm calling you to be in relation with me to trust me. The essence of sin then is not trusting. So here's what Paul says. As you work out your salvation, as you trust that God's better is better, would you obey? Now he gives us three examples of what he wants for us as his followers, three things. He says, church, I want you to obey always. I don't ever want you to grumble and I want you to be fully blameless. On a scale of one to 10 vintage, how are we doing here? Anyone else need to go buy a Desperate Dependent t-shirt, right? Like, this is who we are. Now, this is Paul talking to a church that he loves. He says, this is it. Church, work out your own salvation. Fight for your joy. God saves, God sanctifies, but he gives you this role. Obey perfectly, don't grumble, be blameless. Now, if you're like me, you're like, what's the real answer? Here's what the text says. 
My beloved, obey, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. You're like, wait, Drew, I thought you were gonna give me a real answer. No, that's literally what Paul says. He says, guys, this is what it's like. Remember the Israelites? Remember the Israelites where they said, God, save us from Egypt. And God saves them from Egypt. God gave them the Abrahamic covenant. He put them into, he allowed them to go into captivity. And then he released them from captivity. And what do the Israelites say as they're wandering throughout the desert and the wilderness? What do they say? Can we just please go back to captivity? Does anyone else get frustrated with the Israelites? And then you look in a mirror and you're like, ha ha, I'm so glad God's not done with them. Amen? I'm so glad that God is patient to wrath, that he's long-suffering in his endurance of his grace towards us and his mercy towards us. That word grumbling, I think, goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, which is the Israelites in the desert, and what are they doing? They've been set free, and now they're grumbling. They're grumbling, they're upset, they're not blameless or innocent. And guys, at this point in the text, it'd be easy for us to get depressed, but that we only get depressed when we look at us and not at him. In fact, that's one of our calls of vintage. Look up, not out. As we look up, see what Paul says here. Guys, I don't want you to be grumbling or disputing. I don't want you, I want you to be blameless and innocent. Why? Because you are children of God. Because you are without blemish. Not because of what you do, but because of what? What he's done for you. You're already saved. I want to be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Church, was that true in the Israelites' world? Yeah. Was it true in Jesus' day? Yeah. Was it actually true when Paul wrote this letter later after Jesus had died and, and resurrected? Was that true then? Yeah. Is it true in 2022? Yeah. Can we just not be mad at people in 2022 and just recognize that the world that we live in is full of people that have rejected God's grace and mercy, and therefore we are surrounded in a crooked and perverse generation. But God so loved the world. He didn't give up on it. He left us here. He saved us from our sin, but he sent us to the world not to tell them that they're awful, not to tell them that they're sinners and they're all going to hell. Is that a theologically true statement apart from Christ? Absolutely. But is it a helpful statement apart from Christ? No. No, it's not. What does he tell the church to do? He says, church, this is the world that you live in. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to shine as lights in the world. Every time I read that, I can't help but go back to the, the fire by night. And again, has anyone else noticed the last couple of weeks just how bright the moon was recently? It's beautiful. Does the moon ever shine light of itself? No, what does the moon do? You didn't think you were getting a free lesson here today, right? What does the moon do? The moon reflects what? The light of the sun. S-O-N. That was good, huh? <laughs> Not S-U-N. S-O-N. Church, don't miss this. He calls the church that he loves, that he cares about. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? Because you already know the final score. So why are you upset? Why are you worried? Why are you frustrated? Instead, love the world because God so loved the world. We love the things that he loves because we love him. Have you noticed that? The more that you love someone, the more you start to love what they love. You love the world because you love him. What makes you blameless and innocent is not what you do, but it's the fact that he made you a child of God that you are not blood because of the blood before your blood because of his blood that shines over you and sheds over you in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation, which we've all been a part of. We've all rejected God's offer of lordship in our lives, and yet now he saves us to shine bright. So church, that's our call. 
And can I just tell you, as a pastor at Vintage Grace, I just don't ever get to say it enough, I'm just so proud of you. Now, you all are knuckleheads. I offended someone a long time ago for using that word. I'd explain to them, no, I mean it. <laughs> and they're like, well, that's not what I was expecting to hear. <laughs> but that would make me, as the lead pastor, the chief knucklehead. But God's using us in our brokenness, in our limping along. Why? Because we get to say, no, 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 the moon doesn't shine brightly because of what we did. The moon shines brightly because of what he did. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Amen? And so church, just thank you. It is so fun being your pastor. It's also awful at times and painful and difficult, but God, rich in mercy, abounding in steadfast love. He models, he shows us, he lived that. That's what Paul did. Paul did it because Jesus did it for him. And so I just want to highlight a couple missional grants. This is one of my favorite times of the year. We had over 50 missional grants last year. I love this. It's when our people say, wait, I want to be a missionary. Cool, because you already are one. So I'm glad that you want to be one because you are, whether you know it or not. How can we coach and fund and invest in you? I've just got a couple. Again, this is just seven of the over 50. Here's some pictures from prom. I never thought when we planned Vintage Grace, we'd host the prom. Never. But we did through a missional grant last year. Through the union mind parents living on mission I never thought that I'd get to be so excited when I saw on Facebook a, a student that actually got an award at his school because he filled out a missional grant and actually wanted to create books within a library for his school and he got recognized in front of his class and he's like, yeah, it's because God loves me and so I love you. Come on, like this is our church. Beyond that, I was talking to a, a couple of high school students. I've coached a lot of sports in my life and so now all these young boys are now young men. I can't believe it. They have deep voices and everything, right? Like. I was talking to one of them recently, he's a senior, and he was telling me all about the Jesus Club at church. It was one of our missional grants. These kids show up at, at school, and, and they bring pizzas, and you know what happens when pizzas come? Other people follow. And we get to show them the bread of life, right? We get to show them, and that's through some of our students living on mission. It's happening where they work, live, and play. It's happening in their neighborhoods. I never thought as a church we would help sponsor a dance class in a cul-de-sac. How cool is that? And when I grew up in church where dancing was of the devil because it leads to like chewing gum, right? <laughs> Which then leads to sex. And again, remember, you're only here because of it, so don't stress out. But I love this. Again, this is just a family looking at their cul-de-sac and their neighbors saying, let's do something fun with the hope of building relationships with the people that we know so that we can actually introduce them to Jesus, amen? Beyond that, within our neighborhoods as well, we've seen people launch story hours because during COVID, there was libraries that were closed, so instead we brought the libraries to them. Thank you, Sharon. We saw families multiple that started to throw block parties around Halloween time and other opportunities. Why? Just to build relationships with people. Thank you, Andrea and crew. I love this. We had someone else apply for, a, didn't apply for a missional grant. He's like, I'm just going to do it anyways. And then the power went out when they were going to launch their little block party and show the football game. And so instead, they just did the launch party and gave out candy because, again, if you feed them, they will come. And they got to build relationships. Beyond that, we have a, a new gal to the area that just moved here that actually hosted a party at the senior center right here because they're our neighbors. They're living on mission together. Church, when we set our alarms at Vintage Grace, I hope you're setting it for 9.38. Every day it goes off. And this is the prayer you're praying. Jesus then said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are what? Few. Church, may that never be true of you. I'm not arguing with Jesus because he's always right. But the truth of the matter is way too many people in the church are not living as kingdom laborers. Thank you for not making that true of you, Vintage. Thank you for fighting for your joy. 
Thank you for saying, Lord, I'm broken, I'm sinful, I don't have a lot of light in me, but your light reflects off of me. And so we will be people that we will pray. We have no power to save. Who has the power to save? The Lord of the harvest. Therefore, he said to his disciples, the harvest, plenty of labors are few. Therefore, pray. Pray to who? The Lord of the harvest. That he would send kingdom laborers. That we would start to see our neighborhood, our school, our, our, our professional places that we work, our schools and our, our clubs that we coach in soccer. And we start to see them as opportunities for kingdom movement. And I'm so thankful, church, that I see that in you. So how is this going to happen? How was the last eight years? Because here's what I love. If you heard Rick, one of my pastors in Tennessee, he just simply said, guys, I'm thankful for your last eight years, but if I could be really honest, I'm more excited about your next eight. I'm more excited about what's to come. How will we see even more fruit flow from the faith that we have in Christ, that the Son of God? Here's how, church, we must commit to continually holding fast to the word of life, being biblically saturated, so that three things... Three things that he says, this is how it's going to happen. You're going to have joy in heaven on the day of Christ. You're going to have joy here as you suffer. And you're going to have joy in kingdom advancement to you and through you. Those are the three things we see in the text. It's going to start with holding fast to the word. It's going to start holding fast to your head, your heart, your hands, HQ. We talked about it last week in Revelation. That it's going to penetrate our head. It's going to penetrate our heart. And it's going to affect what we do. But what we do flows from who we are in the heart transplant that Jesus gives us. That's the gospel. Hold fast into the word of life so that on the day of Christ, guys, the second V is coming, amen? And on that day, every one of us will stand before Jesus and he will simply say this, why should I let you into my heaven? What is the answer? You, Jesus. Your mercy, your grace. I got nothing else, amen? Hold fast to the word. That's what teaches us that the reason we are saved is not by what we've done, but by what he's done for us because the day of Christ is coming. And so here's what Paul says. He's in prison. They kind of feel bad for him, Remember? That's as he writing this letter, like, Paul, we feel bad. People are speaking bad about you. They're beating you up. COVID's hurtful and the division's real. And, and like, they're saying all these things. And Paul's like, chill out. Don't worry about me. Hold fast to Christ. And let's just remember, he's the one holding fast to us. Hold fast to Christ. Saturate yourself in scripture because God is going to win. He goes, yes, I actually am being poured out as a drink offering. On some level, I think Paul's like, hey, thanks for recognizing that I'm getting the tar beat out of me. But here's the good news. God wins. That's my greatest joy. That's my greatest joy, Paul says, as the pastor to Philippi. He says, yeah, so even if I'm going to be poured out, like that's a reference to, to the sacrificial system to, towards actually literally taking a drink, drink offering and pouring it out on the altar. And you'd be like, why would you waste that? It's not a waste. It's an act of love. It's an act of service. Paul says this in Romans 12. What is worship? Our entire lives being poured out for the sake of the kingdom. So on some level, Paul's like, hey, thanks for caring about me, but I'm really good at getting poured out. Have you heard of like my snake bites? Have you heard about my shipwrecks? Have you heard about my life? Like, don't feel bad for me. For the sake of the gospel, God wins. And he's using all these things. The third thing then that he says is not only joy in heaven on the day of Christ, not only joy here when there's a gap in our life, but he's saying, guys, I want that for you. He used the same language to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. He says, Timothy, I want that for you. He says, Philippi, I want that for you. Drew, I want that for you. Vintage, I, Drew, want that for you. You're like, well, do you want me to suffer? Well, if it leads to God's glory, yes. Yes, that's what I want for you as your pastor. Why? Because this world is going to end, and my role as pastor is to make sure that you're ready. And I can't help you, but I can point you to he who can I can only help you by pointing you to the fact that God so loved the world that he made a way when there was no other way. So Paul says, even if I'm gonna be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice offering of your faith, I am what? 
glad. Now, again, he's probably not chest-bumping Steph Curry glad. There's different levels of glad, right? There's like glad where you're screaming and yelling, and there's also glad where you're just so content because you already know the final score, you don't even have to yell and scream at the TV because you know God wins. So he's not like chest-bumping, right? He's locked up next to a Praetorian guard. But he goes, I'm glad in the midst of my suffering because I know the final score, so I rejoice with you all. Like, thanks for loving me, but God wins. And guys, this Praetorian guard came to faith because he's stuck with me because God wastes nothing. He says, I'm glad. And as his pastor, what's he say? He says, likewise, you should also be glad and what? Rejoice. And this idea of more joy in Jesus is not Drew's idea. It's not even John Piper's idea. It's, it's Paul who got it from Jesus. That's who it comes from. Which actually goes all the way back to the garden where the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, three in one, made us to be in relationship with him to fight for our joy. So what are the implications? Well, I want to close with three things. We started with three things. I want to close with three things because it's so fun as a dad to walk my children through their last year's three things and say, can you believe it? Like this last year, one of my kids said, I want to make the baseball team in high school. And then the day of his three things this year, he made the team. Like, that was cool. It doesn't always work out that way, by the way. You don't always hit your mark, but he always hits his mark. We're not looking for victory. Our three things are rooted from victory. Here's the first one. Guys, I've loved the last eight years, but I'm really excited for the next eight. It's been a great start. It's been a great start. Even as Daisy said, like I couldn't have even dreamt all the things that he was gonna do in these eight years, but there's new work corporately happening right now. We have new people on staff that hope to plant churches. We have new pastors in our area that we're coaching with the intent of building new joy-filled communities of faith. It was our vision eight years ago, and it's our vision today. And honestly, I love where we are, but I feel like we've just laid a foundation for God to continue to move. And really, that, that's not just a, a corporate vision. Church planning is rooted in a very individualistic vision. Church planning is rooted in this reality that you are living as everyday missionaries. I couldn't help this morning but walk out on the patio and see those maps. And just the timing of when I was here, the sun had just come over the hill. And so it was lighting up all these cities, Orangevale, Folsom, Placerville, Rescue Cameron Park, like all these places and spaces that not corporately we're necessarily saying that's where we're gonna plant our next church, but personally, the gospel's already planted. Why? Because your thumbprint's there. Because you're already living there. God is already doing work. So corporately, am I excited for new works? Absolutely, we're gonna be launching this thing coming up this next year called churchplantteam.com. What that means is for all these planters, again, we wanna be their church plant team. We wanna help them. We want to help them make disciples that make disciples and multiply joyful communities of faith. I'm so excited for that. Personally, I don't know what it looks like. We've got a family that's living in Plymouth and they just love on mission. I'm not saying live on mission, they just love on mission. They drive into church and they drive this direction because Costco's here. But they drive here and then they go home and what do they do at home? They just live on mission. Why? Because that's what disciples do. It's not some magical thing and yet the reality is it only changes eternity. So it is a very magical thing. So I don't know what God's going to do in Plymouth. I don't know what God's going to do in Plasma. I don't know what God's going to do in our churches in Sacramento and our partners in Rancho and families in Orangevale. I just talked to a new family today. They're in Orangevale. And I'm like, oh, have you met so-and-so? They're in Orangevale. Let's launch joy-filled communities of faith everywhere we go. Why? Because the gospel's already been planted in us. And now we get to go ground it other places. So I'm excited for new works of God corporately. And I'm emotionally excited about new works personally. Why? Because I've been able to see people in these last eight years that have come to vintage not knowing Jesus, find joy in Jesus, or more, Jesus found them and die, and now they're with Jesus. It's impossible on a birthday not to reflect on death. 
because it's coming. As the birthdays stack up, it feels like it's closer and closer and closer. <laughs> That's just real. I'm not trying to be depressing. Is anyone depressed? Don't be depressed. God wins. But guys, there's no greater joy for me than watching you be the pastor to your neighbor as they meet Jesus face to face. That's what Paul wants for Timothy. That's what Paul wants for Philippi. Don't, don't be sad for me. Don't be sad that I can't be with you because if I'm not with you, guess what? You get to be with them. That's what Paul says. Somebody say amen. amen. You guys are surrounded by people that are gonna die this year. They're not gonna get to do their three things next year with you because they're not gonna have a next year. And guys, I'm not saying this to be depressing because here's my last little pastoral piece for your birthday message. My last little pastoral piece is suffering's coming. You've heard me say it before. Every one of us is either coming out of suffering or in the middle of suffering or what? You're stepping into suffering. And people are like, gosh, you're so depressing. I'm not because I know the final score. So therefore suffering is not something I fear. Now I'm not weird. I don't like get really excited. I kind of do because I know the final score, because I know what God does. And so this year, one of you will have a friend that will die, and here's my prayer, that you get to help them understand that death is not an enemy. As believers, we have to fear. It's a gateway to glory, amen? There's no greater joy. And so Paul says, guys, I appreciate feeling bad because I'm locked up in prison. I can't be with you in Philippi, but if I'm not with you, you get to be with them and get to show them Jesus, amen? And so I wanna close our time on our birthday celebration just hearing from one of our young people because God is doing a work through our young people. That those of us who are older, I'm not old yet, we're older. Those of us who are older better be paying attention because God wins and suffering's coming. And when suffering comes, here's our prayer, that people see Jesus to us and through us for his glory and for their good and so that eternity would be changed. Let's hear from Emily right now. I was taking a test and I was leaning down to see my paper and I was having a really hard time breathing. And I kind of felt my neck and I could feel that there was something hard there, but I wasn't really sure. It didn't really strike any fear or anything. But just to be safe, I went home and I told my mom. And so just to be on the safe side, we called my doctor and she just had us come in just to take a look at it. And she didn't think it was anything either, but um, she also wanted to be safe. So she ordered some tests and we went to the hospital or to Marshall Hospital and we did, um, an ultrasound on my neck and then I went home and then they called me back to do a chest x-ray and then I went home um, and then they called me back again to go to the ER and they didn't really um, say much about why they just said you know I think she might have lymphoma and I didn't really know what that word meant so it was kind of all this new world to me and I was kind of like unsure about what was going to happen. I remember specifically going into the ER and telling them, oh, well, my doctor said that I might have lymphoma. And the first thing they did was say, oh, I'm so sorry. And that kind of clicked something in my mind. It was like, why are you sorry? You know, I'm fine. I don't, I feel fine. And that's kind of when it started to click for me that this is bigger than I thought it was. Um, and so I was in the ER for a whole night and then they finally got me up into my room. And even just, being there, I immediately kind of saw God's love because the nurses, I went into the room, they decorated it. They put a Christmas tree up because it was Christmas Eve. Um, and they made me feel welcome right away. And it, even though I've never been there before, it felt like a safe space for me to be. And I wasn't as scared anymore. 
When my small group found out, um, they immediately showered me with like love and, like I said, prayer. And what they did actually was every single one of them wrote me a letter or like a little note, and they brought a care package to the hospital. And so while I was staying there in this place that was kind of unfamiliar, you know, um, I got to have all their letters up on the cabinet next to my bed. And so every time I would get up to walk around, that's what I would see. And it was super comforting knowing that I had this community and these people there for me during this time that I didn't know was going to happen. So I actually went through six months of treatment. I had um, 12 treatments, six rounds, and every it was every other Thursday I would go to the hospital. And um, they gave me four drugs um, through, I had something called a port in my chest right here. I would be there from maybe eight in the morning to five at night. So it was a really long day, but the nurses there were really wonderful. Um, I ended in June, so it was really, really cool. I'm doing great. I am in remission and my last scan showed that I'm still, you know, still beating it. It's still not coming back. So one thing going through treatment is I was able to seek out other kids in the hospital with me and kind of just find that connection with them. And I feel like that was God moving through me, um, being able to be there for other people who might have felt pretty alone. And it's hard too because, you know, your parents can be there for you, but it's hard for them to understand. So um, finding other teens or kids that were going through the same thing and being that person that did understand what they were going through and just giving them a sense of like a shoulder to lean on.